This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are fortunate to have tonight a uh, colleague and a friend, Dr. Erin Mathis. And actually, she I don't know if she remembers this, but she was one of my students. And now she's teaching me. So uh, I know. Kind of bummer. It's like I'm on the way down. Um, so uh, she's an assistant professor. She's in pediatrics and in dermatology. So um, highly trained. I think she's been in training for 32 years, actually. Um, and um, she's going to uh, tell us today about how she figures out problems um, in people who have... Uh, illness that affects their skin. So um, I'd like you all to welcome Dr. Mathis. Thank you, Jeff. It's um, a pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you all for coming. Um, I know there are Olympics and things like that to watch on television, but um, hopefully you'll enjoy this and and learn something as well. Um, I am a pediatric dermatologist, so in my clinical practice, I see pretty much only children. I maybe see about 5% adults, so most of my cases are going to be uh, about kids, but some of them have problems that are also um, seen in adults, and um, I have one one adult case. So um, this is a really interesting talk for me to put together because it really made me take a step back and think about how I see things and how I make diagnoses. Um, and Many dermatologists will tell you that they just look at it and they know what it is, but I tried to sort of break it down a little bit for you guys to um, go through a little bit more of the thought process behind what we see when we see things on the skin. Um, so dermatology is the branch of medicine that's concerned with the diagnosis and treatment of skin disorders. Um, the skin is the largest organ in the human body, which makes us feel important, um, and and we, we think it's also the most important organ in the human body. Um, but more importantly, the skin, I like to think of it as a window in many ways. The skin belies a person's stories. It belies a little bit about their past injuries they may have had, um, inflammatory conditions they may have had, whether they're in good health, poor health, how old they are, um, and, and for many people, their aspirations or their cultural identity as well. Um, Also, similar to a window, the skin is what separates us from the outside world. So your skin is what stands between all of your neurons and your blood cells and everything inside of you and the outside world. So the skin protects us from things that are dangerous in the outside, like temperature, toxic chemicals, things like that, and also keeps the inside in and helps regulate that boundary. So when this window gets broken or when there's inflammation or something that impairs the skin barrier, you get skin disease. Um, And that's one of the reasons that I find the skin so fascinating. So this is a bunch of pictures of things that we see every day in clinic. Um, And as a dermatologist, our most useful tool is our eyes. We spend our careers, so all of our residencies, for me, five years of residency plus a year of fellowship, and then all of our years as attending physicians, refining our ability to see subtle differences in normal and abnormal skin. Along with seeing the differences is developing a language to describe those differences. And what's interesting is that the ability to see goes along with the ability to describe. 
And so if you can't describe a skin lesion to somebody, you may not be seeing exactly what is important to see. So what I'd like to go through with you guys today is a little bit about basic dermatologic principles, so the observational skills that we use, a little bit about the language that we use to describe things that we see, and then our detective process, so what, what tools we use, how we think about problems, and then we'll go through several mystery cases together. Um, so we're going to start with some observational skills. And I'd like you to all take a look at this on the screen and think about how would you describe this object. And then think, well, how would you describe it if you couldn't tell somebody that it's a button? So think about what words you would use. Think about its shape, its color, its texture. And I'll share with you one way that I described it, and we'll see how many people agreed or disagreed with that. So this is a light brown, circular, shiny object with four circular holes in the center. It's on a blue background and casts a shadow. So how many people had something kind of similar to this? (coughs) About half of you are raising your hands. How many people had something totally different? We got like four or five totally different. (laughs) Um, So the important, the key features of describing this button to somebody so that they can see it in their head and they know what you're talking about is its color, so it's light brown, its shape, it's circular, its texture, which is shiny, and then the four circular holes in the center, which are its additional defining characteristics, and then it's on a blue background that tells you the context that it's in, and it casts a shadow which tells you that it's raised up. So in dermatology, we use many of these same descriptive words to describe skin lesions, and we call that morphology. Um, And so the morphology encompasses a lot of different descriptors, and I'll go through some of those with you. Um, The first is the primary lesion. So how does it start? Is it big? Is it small? Is it a little bump? Is it a blister? And we'll go through some primary lesions. The next is the secondary features. So what else happens to it once it's there? Does it bleed? Does it get scratched? Does it crust? Is it scaly? Texture, how does it feel? Color, we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's pretty self-explanatory. Distribution is very important, so where is it located on the skin? And then configuration, how is it arranged? And so we'll go through one of each of these one by one. This is a cartoon of primary lesions, and this is what medical students memorize. Um, and then we continue to try to refine in residency. A macule here. So you can see this. each of these little cartoons is a sort of a cube of skin. This very top layer is the stratum corneum. This is the epidermis, the top layer of skin. This pink is the dermis, which is where all of the collagen and connective tissue is that holds your skin together. And this is your subcutaneous fat right here. So a macule is something that's small and flat. So like a freckle, you run your finger over it, you can't tell it's there. Okay, so everybody, you could look at your hands. You probably have some macules on the back of your hands. I have lots of macules, lentigos freckles, age spots, whatever you want to call them. Um, A patch is something that is flat but is bigger. So if any of you have birthmarks or cafe au lait or if you've seen one of those before, that's an example of a patch. So it's big and flat. Papule is 
raised up but small. A plaque is raised up but bigger, so bigger than a centimeter. A nodule is raised up and under the skin. You can see that this whole thing lives in the dermis here in that second layer of skin. So cysts are nodules, um, lipomas are nodules, things that live under the skin and push up on the skin. A vesicle is a tiny little blister in the skin. A bulla is a big blister, so fluid underneath the top two layers of skin here, or the top layer of skin. And then a pustule is a pus bump or a little sac filled with pus underneath the skin. So these are all primary lesions. And this is sort of our main filing system in dermatology. So rashes are defined by their primary lesions. So the next thing we think about is color. And similar to how Inuit have supposedly 100 words for snow, um, dermatologists have 100 words for pink or skin colored or brown. <laughs> and we are very particular about our colors um, because to us it's very important, right? So a rash that makes something this color, this sort of cherry red color, is very different from a rash that makes something this color. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on whether this is purple red or orange red or brown red or pink or light pink or dark pink or blue gray or brown gray. I mean, it can go on and on and on. And so here are some examples um, of different skin things. And you can see how the color is very important for each of these, right? This is, a, this is blue gray. You look at that and you think, wow, that's different. I should know what that color is. This color here is a particular one that is pink with just a hint of purple to it. And that um, is something that can be very hard to see initially. And I probably couldn't see that color very well until about a year into my residency when it was pointed out to me over and over again. This here is an example of brownish with a hint of red and a hint of yellow. Um, this is a mastocytoma, so a collection of allergy cells underneath the skin. We see it in kids all the time. So the next is secondary features. So what happens to the rash once it has established itself? And so these are things like scale and crust that you see here in this picture, um, a fissure, which is a crack in the skin, erosion, which is these. So these are all eroded papules. So they're small bumps on the skin, and the top of the skin has been removed, probably by scratching and by infection. Ulceration. So this is an ulcerated hemangioma, a birthmark in a baby, um, where they've lost the top two layers of skin, not just that very top epidermis, but the, the sore goes all the way into the um, dermis and sometimes the subcutaneous tissue. And then this is one that we see a lot in kids with eczema, in adults with eczema or atopic dermatitis. It's called lichenification. And what it is is accentuation of the normal skin lines on your body. So if you look at your hands and you look down, you see all those tiny little wrinkles on the backs of your hands. And if you were to rub your hand repeatedly for a year, <laughs> you would get lichenification. So you would get accentuation of the normal skin lines on your hands. So this child is six years old, um, even though her hands look wrinkled. But she has very bad eczema, and she's been scratching and rubbing for six years, and that's why her hands look like that. So... The next thing is configuration, and so that means how the primary lesions are arranged. And these mostly make sense. Um, so linear 
is arranged in a line like these plaques here. Segmental is, this is another hemangioma, another birthmark, um, meaning it takes up a, a segment of skin, which is a little hard to describe, but basically an embryologic bit of skin. Um, so that's segmental, takes up that whole part of her face. Um, reticulated is net-like. Serpiginous is snake-like. Um, annular is shaped like a ring. This is an example of an annular plaque. Clustered here, a bunch of vesicles all clustered together. And then unnatural, I put in because I um, sometimes you see things on the skin and you're like, the body didn't make that. That that happened. That happened some that was happened some some other way. So something unnatural made that happen. And so, you know, tattoos are unnatural, right? It's not normal to have um, well, it is normal, but it's not uh, <laughs> organic uh, to have a black line in the shape of a snake on your arm. That's, that's unnatural. So distribution uh, is also important, and that's where is it? Where is the rash? So there are many things that many rashes and birthmarks have specific locations that they like to go. For example, psoriasis likes to be on the elbows and the knees and the scalp. Um, eczema likes to be in the creases and uh, on the hands and the ankles. So the distribution is really important in helping us decide what something is. So that was all about morphology. And we learn, we use the morphology of the rash or the birthmark that we see um, to categorize all of the diseases that we take care of. And dermatologists take care of many thousands of of diseases. We have things that we, we memorize things, as I'm sure many other physicians do. We memorize things that we will only see once in our career or maybe never in our career. And it all goes into basically a big filing system in our brain. And we use the morphology to decide where to look in the filing system. So if you see clustered vesicles, you go to the clustered vesicle file <laughs> in your brain and you make a list of what the possibilities are based on that morphology. So I'll walk you through just one relatively straightforward example of a case. So this is, you guys have seen this before. This is um, on the shoulder of a 10-year-old girl. And it is a plaque because it's raised. You can see it. I mean, you can feel it. So you run your finger over it. You can feel it. And it's bigger than a centimeter. It's pink. It's scaly. And it's annular. It's ring-shaped. So you put that into your filing system, and you come out with tinea corporis, which is ringworm, is a very common thing that makes an annular scaly plaque. Eczema, which is um, an itchy condition that can make lesions like this. And then rarer things, which I put in small font like lupus or leishmaniasis, which is a parasitic infection. So we can't be sure what this is by looking at it. We can't be 100% sure. We can be 98% sure or 99 even. But we do sometimes use additional tools to make this diagnosis. And um, in my toolbox, I put, this is a little bit uh, contrary to conventional medical teaching, I put the patient's story in the toolbox. You are supposed to take the patient's story first. So you are supposed to walk in the room and talk to the patient first and ask them how, how they got this thing, how long it's been there. Um, what makes it worse, what makes it better. But often in dermatology, because we are such a visual field, we will just walk in the room and, and look at the patient. We try to say hello and shake their hands first <laughs> to have good bedside manner. Um, 
but so the patient story is obviously an additional tool in our toolbox. And then we use magnifying glasses. We use something called the dermatoscope, which is this thing here. It's a magnifying glass that you put up against the surface of the skin, and you uh, use an oil or an alcohol interface. And it basically eliminates the reflection of life, light off the surface of the skin. So you can see through the stratum corneum and look at um, the pattern of melanocytes under the skin in a mole. So it's a very useful way of looking at moles um, that helps us decide whether they're benign or malignant, um, whether we need to biopsy them. In addition, we do biopsies. Um, I, I won't ask you all to raise your hands if you've had a skin biopsy, but it's pretty common to have a skin biopsy for a mole or something else. Um, we do scrapings of the skin to look for fungus and then cultures to look for bacteria. Um, and so in this case here, we had a list. This is We call this our differential diagnosis. Um, our differential diagnosis was tinea corporis, eczema, lupus, and leishmaniasis. And we did a scraping of the surface of the lesion. So we take a 15-blade scalpel and scrape over the top of the skin, get some skin scales on the plate, put some KOH on it, um, and then this is what we see when we look at it under the microscope. And so you see here the branching hyphae of the dermatophyte. So that's a superficial fungal infection, and that has confirmed the diagnosis. So this is a pretty straightforward everyday sort of case, and we're going to go through now some cases that are a little bit more complicated. So this is a 10-year-old girl with a history of eczema, who was hospitalized for blisters all over. And this is what you see when you look at her. So I won't I won't have you raise your hands, but just look at look at the look at her rash, see if you can think of what the primary lesion is, and then any secondary features or configuration that's important. So somebody pointed out, yes, there are, there are lines. So this is linear. There are papules and vesicles that are in a linear distribution. So in approaching this, we say that she has papules, plaques, and vesicles that are in a linear distribution, and they are excoriated. So excoriated is scratched. So she's got excoriations or evidence of scratching. Um, and the list that I came up with or that the, prime, the team came up with for her differential diagnosis, they were very concerned that this was herpes because they saw blisters on the skin, and they knew that herpes causes blisters. Um, Chickenpox was another thought because there were lots of little tiny blisters on the skin. Eczema, because she had a history of eczema, and then contact dermatitis, which is an allergic reaction, allergic rash. And so in going through the differential diagnosis, what I've put together here are pictures of all of those things and... I'm going to have you guys raise your hands. So this is a picture of classic eczema. Um, this is an older child's arm crease, and this is a baby. This is herpes simplex virus. So this is a classic orolabial herpes with little blisters along the border of the lip. And this is something called eczema herpeticum, where you get herpes in an area that's previously been affected by eczema, and you get little tiny round erosions. They're monomorphous. So monomorphous is a helpful dermatology word. It means they're all the same. And then this is varicella zoster. So this is not classic chicken pox, but this is what happens after you've had chicken pox, um, where the virus goes and lives in a nerve root and then creeps back out along the nerve root. And this was a consideration because of the linear distribution that our patient had, but it's not quite linear, right? We call this dermatomal. 
So it means it's along the line of a nerve root. So this is just, it can be anywhere. And this patient's is probably at T2, so thoracic nerve 2. And then contact dermatitis. This is an example of contact dermatitis. In the, so how many people think our patient has eczema? Okay, you got like three votes there. Okay, how many people think herpes simplex virus? Uh, another couple votes. Varicella? Two. And contact dermatitis. Oh, that wins by far. So a lot of people voted for that. Um, and so that's what we thought as well when we saw her in the hospital. We thought, oh, yes, maybe this is contact dermatitis. But she had no history of a contact. We could not get anything out of her, of like anything she had come into contact with. But finally, on like the 10th round of questioning, and you do feel a little bit like you're interrogating somebody, um, we did get out of her that, oh, yes, she went camping two weeks ago or 10 days ago in central California. And this is a 10-year-old girl, and we say to her, okay, well, did you see any poison oak? No, no poison oak. Didn't, didn't do it. There was none there. You ask the mom, nope, she didn't do any poison oak, nothing like that, nothing. No, no poison oak anywhere. And, of course, there has to be, right? <laughs> what else could it be? Um, but we showed her a picture of poison oak that we got from the Internet, and she said, oh, yes, yes, in fact, that was all down by the lake where I was playing. So... In this case, our tool was an additional history, and we wouldn't have known what questions to ask if we hadn't looked at her first, right? We had to know what she looked like and what her rash looked like before we could ask the appropriate set of questions. So this is indeed poison oak. Um, And poison oak is a prototype of an allergic contact dermatitis. It's itchy, weepy. Um, It's often linear because as you walk past the branches of the bush, it wipes on your legs. And what's tricky about contact dermatitis is that it often starts 48 to 72 hours after you've had contact. And it's amazing what people forget in that 48 to 72 hours. (laughs) Um, So similarly to this child. So raise your hand if you've had poison oak before. Yeah, okay. I've never had it. I don't know why. I grew up here with poison oak in my backyard, and I've never had it. So Um, this is another example of poison oak. Um, that I showed previously. This also has the telltale calamine lotion sign. Um, so <laughs> you know it's itchy. Yes? So out of curiosity, since it takes 48 to 72 hours for it to show up, does it, if you think you've been exposed to poison oak, does it help to go take a shower? Yes, absolutely. Yes, you should absolutely try to go take a shower. Um, so if it takes 48 to 72 hours to show up, does it help to take a shower? And the answer is yes. Please go take a shower, rinse it off. Cold water, I don't know that it makes a difference, cold or warm. Good soap, good shower, wash your hands, wash your clothes, wash your dog. <laughs> Does it rub in alcohol and or two? I don't. Yeah, it could, it could help with the resin. Yes, exactly. So this is uh, that same patient, and if you were to biopsy poison oak, this is what you would see. So we don't often biopsy contact dermatitis, but if you did, this is what it looks like under a microscope. So you have the stratum corneum, the very top layer of skin, You have your epidermis here, and then the dermis down below. And you can see all of the action is in that very top layer of skin, and these are the tiny little blisters that you're seeing. So the top layer of skin is so swollen that you get little collections of fluid underneath the skin. So the technical name for poison oak is toxicodendron dermatitis. It's in the Anacardiaceae family, and it's poison oak, ivy, and sumac. And you can see they have the very... Poison ivy and poison oak have the same benzene ring, and they have a different variable chain there. Um, And this is what they look like. 
And this obviously is familiar to us. This is poison oak's territory. Uh, this is poison ivy's territory. And then poison sumac is here. And so if somebody has gone camping in the high Sierras, they may not, and they show up with a rash like this, it's actually probably not to poison oak because poison oak doesn't live high up in the mountains. It actually is a lower down foothill sort of plant. Um, interestingly, you can get what we call a toxicodendron-related dermatitis. So people who are allergic to poison oak often cross-react to things like mango, cashew nuts, and ginkgo trees because the resin in these things is very similar to the resin in poison oak. So contact dermatitis is really your classic mystery because some, they've come, the patient has come into contact with something and you need to figure it out. And so how do you do that? Well, you first decide that it is a contact dermatitis by looking at it. Um, and we talked a little bit about how you know. And then you have to know what the possible allergens are because you are never going to be able to ask somebody about every single exposure they've had in the past two weeks. It's just impossible. You have to know which ones to ask about. And then if you need to, you can do something called patch testing to confirm your diagnosis. So obviously the distribution is important in contact dermatitis. So this child has a rash and swelling limited really only to his lips. And I know what he has, but you can come up with a whole list of things. It could have been his chapstick. It could have been his toothpaste, because both of those have flavorings called cinnamates that are in them that people can often become allergic to. But this was, in fact, mango. So this is a child who had eaten mango and was allergic to mango and got a perioral rash. Um, any ideas about what caused this? This is a three-year-old who had a bug bite on his arm. <clears throat> his mom put some antibiotic ointment and a Band-Aid on it. How many people think it's the Band-Aid? Four or so. How many people think it's the antibiotic ointment? <laughs> change, change vote. Yes, it is the antibiotic ointment. And the way you can tell is that the bumps, so he's got, again, papulovesicles with crust and erosion. And the, the primary lesion is all around. And so usually people, if they're going to get a Band-Aid reaction, either to the adhesive um, or the latex, they get it in exactly the shape of a Band-Aid. And this is all over the place, so it's more likely to be the antibiotic ointment. And neosporin is one of the top allergens that people are allergic to. So topical antibiotic ointment is very, very commonly sensitizing. This is one of my favorites. Any idea? Yeah, so this is a contact dermatitis to something called paraphenylene diamine, which is a black dye that's in fake henna tattoos. So it's not in true henna, but it's in the paint that people use when they get fake henna tattoos down in, in Mexico um, or in Hawaii tropical locations. Usually they go on vacation and come back very, very concerned about what has happened to their arm. Um, this, this goes away. Um, this is a new one that was published recently in the journal Pediatrics. Um, this is a little girl before and after. And I can't come up with a way to ask to tell you what she had been doing without telling you the answer. Um, but she has an allergic contact dermatitis to an ingredient in baby wipes. So, you know, baby wipes, diaper wipes are everywhere now. They package them, you know, as diaper wipes for babies, and they package them as face wipes for older people. And people 
use these baby wipes all over on all parts of their body. Um, and this girl was wiping her face with a baby wipe. And when she stopped, she got better. Um, so this is how we confirm what you're allergic to. So this is called patch testing. So you take a detailed history of somebody who has a contact dermatitis, and then you come up with a list of maybe even up to 100 different things that are possible allergens for that person. You stick them in a grid on their back. You put tape on them. You send them away. You tell them not to shower for a week. And then every couple days, you check the back, and you see if any of them have reacted. So this is an example from that um, the diaper wipe publication. This is a, a baby or a toddler who had a diaper rash. And then this is his patch test, which is positive. So he got basically the same rash that he had on his bum um, in the area where the patch test chemical for isothiazonin. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm not even going to try anymore. So that's what a positive patch test result is, and that's how you confirm that that's what caused his rash. So um, our mystery number one take-home point is that linear configuration can be a sign of an outside job. So when you see things in lines and unnatural shapes, you think outside job. Um, So we'll move on to mystery number two. It's a pretty big change of gears. Um, This is a 50- or 8-year-old woman, originally from Mexico, who had a renal transplant um, two months, so a kidney transplant two months prior to admission. She was hospitalized for weakness. And when she was hospitalized, she developed an pneumonia, and the doctors were unable to take her off the ventilator. On her 10th day in the hospital, she developed purpura. And what are purpura, you may ask? And this is her. So just around her abdomen, only around her belly button, she had these macules that don't blanch when you press on them. So that's the definition of purpura. So when you press on it, it does, nothing happens to it. It stays red. So purpura is, by definition, uh, blood under the skin. So this is a bunch of other people who have purpura. So this is another example of an unnatural shape, right? So this is somebody who has been cupping um, and has purpura purpura because of cupping, um, which is a Chinese medicine practice. Um, These children have very severe bloodstream infections that have led them to have purpura. And these two children here have vasculitis. So basically the blood vessels that serve the skin have gotten so inflamed that they can't do their job anymore and you get bleeding under the skin. So that's purpura. So the differential diagnosis of purpura is very long because there are lots of things that can cause it. And so when you look at that woman, she can't possibly have all 20 of these things, right? it's just not possible. She has one. And how, what, what is unusual about her purpura that could help us guide our differential diagnosis? Location? Yeah, exactly. The location or the distribution. So what's unusual about her purpura is that it's all periumbilical. So she had nothing anywhere else. She just had periumbilical purpura. So in going through our algorithm for this case, we... S- Basically, our morphology is that she has purpuric macules that are periumbilical. And when we put that into our file box, if you were me, I was a first-year resident at the time, and so my list was like 30 things long that included (laughs) bleeding disorders, bacterial infections, vasculitis, and then other infections. Um, But I really didn't know. And she had been in the ICU, and so she had had blood tests done, which helped narrow things a little bit. And... Her white blood cell count was slightly high, 
which is a sign of infection. Interestingly, her eosinophil count was also slightly high. So eosinophils are a subtype of white blood cells that fight, that, um, sorry, that are activated in allergies. They're also um, high in parasitic infections. Her INR, which is a bleeding um, measurement, was also slightly high. But interestingly, her blood cultures were negative. She had viral tests that were negative and other studies for infection that were negative. So we did a biopsy. So this is, again, another skin biopsy. This is, again, the very top layer of the skin, the stratum corneum. Here's the epidermis. And then here's our dermis here, all of these bundles of collagen holding the skin together. And what you see is basically just blood in between the bundles of collagen. So we don't see any disruption of the blood vessels themselves. So we don't see a vasculitis. Um, and we don't see anything else, no little clusters of bacteria or anything like that. So we did some lab tests, we did a skin biopsy, and we still don't have an answer. We can rule out a bunch of things. So we can rule out a bleeding disorder, we can rule out a bacterial infection, we can rule out vasculitis. So we're left with other infection on our list. And Thank goodness, at the time, I was working with um, Lindy Fox, who I don't know if any of you know. She's an adult dermatologist here. Um, and she had been an attending at that point for about six months. So she's this, she's this young attending. Um, she's super smart, and, but also a New Yorker. So she's a New, she'd come from back east. She <laughs> and she was... Anyway, so we walked into the ICU. <laughs> we walked into the ICU together, and... She looks at this patient. She takes one look at the patient. Doesn't need to know anything else. And she says, she needs a bronchoscopy. So a bronchoscopy is when you look down somebody's lungs with a camera. And the ICU attendings are like, what is this dermatologist doing telling us that this patient needs a bronchoscopy? Like, this is not her organ, right? Skin, outside, lungs, inside. But, so, turns out that she got a bronchoscopy. They ultimately listened to Dr. Fox. And... What they do in a bronchoscopy is they flush a little fluid down into the air sacs, and then they suck it back. And they look at what they suck back under the microscope. And this is what she had. So on her lung lavage, she had Strongyloides stercoralis filiform larva. So she had little larvae in her lungs. So she had a parasitic infection in her lungs, and that was what was causing everything. And so you should appropriately ask, how on earth can you get periumbilical purpura from a lung infection with a parasite? And that is a very good question, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But I'll tell you a little bit more about strongyloides first. So strongyloides is a nematode or a roundworm. It's endemic in tropical and subtropical climates, so southern U.S., um, Mexico, where this woman was from, Vietnam, etc., there are 15, 50 million people worldwide who are infected with this, so it's pretty darn common. Um, the principal host is humans, so it's, we, are, we are it. Um, dogs and cats and other animals can be reservoirs. And it's also quite common to have an asymptomatic infection, um, so people don't know that they have it. <clears throat> and then there is, interestingly, and this is what our patient had, this potential for auto-infection. So basically, she kept reinfecting herself. And I'll explain that here with the strongyloides life cycle. So this is from the CDC webpage. Um, and basically, in the red here is the, the normal life cycle of the strongyloides. The <clears throat> larvae is excreted in the stool. It turns into adult worms 
they lay eggs, they make more larvae. This larva here, which is a filariform larva, then penetrates into the skin. So this is, you get it from walking around in mud and still water that have these larvae in them. It burrows under your skin and then burrows into the bloodstream where it crawls into your lung spaces. And so what she had over here was this auto-infection cycle where she kept, she would get them in her lung, she would cough them up, they would go back into her bloodstream, into her intestines, over and over and over again. And so in normal hosts, um, strongyloides causes something called ground itch, which is just an itchy rash, hives, um, and then perhaps in dermatology is a field that is filled with many things that are slightly... Uh, off color, um, but this I think is the is the worst of them all. This is cutaneous larva curens, which is basically the worm crawling underneath your skin. And and what's so there there are actually two conditions in dermatology that do this. One of them crawls quickly, and that's this one, larva curens. And one of them crawls slowly, and that's larva migrans. So this one crawls at ten centimeters per hour, which is really fast. Yeah, I know. And then also can cause periumbilical purpura. So um, I have never seen this, this, this crawly larva curens, and I, and I hope not to. Um, <laughs> so, but then, again, you asked how on earth could this cause periumbilical purpura. And we're not entirely sure, but we think that the larvae penetrate the small bowel wall and then migrate into the free abdominal cavity and then into the abdominal wall and basically get into the blood vessels in the skin and cause hemorrhage because they're living there underneath the skin. There have been 20 to 40 cases of this reported. It's a well-known thing in dermatology. Most people don't see it, um, and thankfully Dr. Fox had seen it before um, because she was able to recognize it right away. Um, This is a example of a skin biopsy from a publication that has actually the larva in it. Um, How big are those larvae? They're little. So if you go back to this, um, these are red blood cells. Um, So really small. But you can see it with a microscope. You know, this is probably 40x on a microscope. So 40, 40 times magnification. So, little. Did you ask uh, how she got that infection in the first place and what, what she could do to prevent further? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. We, we did not ask um, how she had gotten it. I th- we assumed um, that she came from a part of the world where it's endemic. So, most, most or a lot of people living in that area get that infection. And so it's very common. The fact that she was immunosuppressed and had had a kidney transplant and was not well probably contributed to the fact that she got sicker with it than normal people get. Um, She didn't have any kind of peritonitis with the the, the worm migrating from the bowel to the skin? Or was it because she had a kidney transplant and she was treated with um, antibiotics, probably, that they kept it down or something? So... um, that's a complicated question. Um, the, <laughs> she, she may have had peritonitis. She did have some abdominal distension. and So peritonitis is inflammation of the abdominal cavity on the inside. And she did have some abdominal distension um, and probably had some um, inflammation from that. Um, the type of antibiotics that you would get 
as routine care for being immunosuppressed from having a renal transplant are not the type of antibiotics that would kill a roundworm. So her treatment consisted of ivermectin and albendazole. So ivermectin is an anti-helminthic, so an anti-worm medicine that's actually approved for use in um, animals um, that we use off-label in humans. Um, And then albendazole is pretty commonly used anti-parasitic in humans. Um, We added, or the infectious disease team added albendazole because the ivermectin wasn't working. So a week after taking ivermectin, she still had larvae in her lungs. Um, But this woman actually did relatively well, given all of her um, other issues. Her bronchoscopy became negative after two weeks only, um, and she was eventually weaned from the ventilator and was transferred out to another hospital closer to her home for rehab. So, you know, this is a really good story in that um, my attending, Dr. Fox, used her her big filing cabinet in her brain and her very good eyes to make a diagnosis that saved this woman's life. So um, the take-home points for this, um, periumbilical purpura is strongyloides hyperinfection <laughs> until proven otherwise, which isn't going to be too useful for you in your um, everyday life. Um, but the second one is work with smart people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, just a quick question. Yeah. If she wasn't continually reinfecting herself, would her body have gotten rid of the parasite? Okay. She, um, she probably would have just lived with it. So the question was, if she wasn't continually reinfecting herself, would her body have gotten rid of it? And I think most people just live with it asymptomatically. So they just shed larvae periodically. Yeah. It did. Yes, it did. She, she was not going to get rid of it on her own, um, but she was a very special, very rare case of this type of infection. So, you know, the, the 50 million people worldwide who have this infection are not this sick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so we're going to move back to pediatrics now. Um, this is mystery case number three. This is a three-month-old girl who was born at 27 weeks gestation, and she developed a rash one week after leaving the nursery. So she was three months early. She probably stayed in the hospital for about three months and then got a rash one week after leaving the hospital. She had been breastfeeding well. Antibiotics didn't help the rash, and hydrocortisone, which is a topical steroid that's over-the-counter, also didn't help the rash. And this is her rash. So again, go back to your primary, primary morphology. Think about what it is exactly that's on her skin. And as you look at it, think about what are those distinguishing features? What makes this different from other rashes that you have seen before? Symmetric. Yeah, so it's symmetric. Um, and I think if you look at it really, so it's eroded. So her primary morphology is actually erosions. So she's missing the top layer of her skin, you can see here and here. Um, and if you look at this, it's shiny and brown. And it looks kind of like shellac, like that you would finish a floor with or something like that. And that is actually the key to this diagnosis. So her morphology is erosions with a shellac crust, and it's importantly in her diaper area, face, and on her fingers. And so if you go into your filing cabinet, you think about, okay, well, it could be a diaper rash, an irritant diaper rash. It could be impetigo, which is a type of bacterial infection that babies get sometimes in their diaper areas and makes erosions. Um, it could be psoriasis, which is an inflammatory condition that babies sometimes get in their diapers, diaper areas. 
And then there's this thing called deficiency dermatitis that is classically has this shellac thing. And so this is our um, differential diagnosis so that you can see how these things all look different. Pardon all of the diaper areas. Um, but this is an irritant diaper rash, deficiency dermatitis, impetigo, and then psoriasis. So we're going to vote again. I feel like you're going to get all the right answer, but here we go. Who thinks it's irritant diaper rash, deficiency dermatitis? That was pretty much everybody. Impetigo, psoriasis. Okay, good. You all are very, very astute already after just 40 minutes. So she has a deficiency dermatitis, but the mystery is not solved yet. Um, And the symptom of a deficiency dermatitis is erosive rash around the mouth diaper area, poor growth if it goes on for a long time, hair loss, irritability, and diarrhea. And then the causes are many. So zinc deficiency is one of them. Biotin, vitamin B12, essential fatty acids can all give you a deficiency dermatitis. And then you can also have a deficiency dermatitis in both adults and children and infants if you have cystic fibrosis and you're not absorbing nutrients in your gut well, if you are malnourished for some other reason, or if you have malabsorption because of some intestinal process. So if, you, if, if your deficiency persists long enough, you can get this sort of rash. So in approaching this case, we have, based on our morphology alone, we have crossed out impetigo, diaper dermatitis, and psoriasis. But then we need to figure out what exactly she is deficient in. Because obviously, if she has a biotin deficiency, giving her zinc is not going to make her any better. Um, And this is where it helps to have read some textbooks and know what the most common causes of deficiency are, and that is zinc. So zinc is the most common deficiency in a newborn. Um, And so in an effort to spare the medical system thousands of dollars of lab tests, um, we decided to order an alkaline phosphatase and and a serum zinc, and both of those were low for her. So alkaline phosphatase is an enzyme that's produced in the liver that is zinc dependent, And so when your zinc level is low, then your alkaline phosphatase is also low. This is helpful because alkaline phosphatase takes a day to come back from the lab, and zinc takes a week to come back from the lab, and we would like to help this girl as soon as possible. So this is just another example of a deficiency dermatitis, and you can see how similar it is to our case. Exact same distribution, the same even sort of shape on the buttocks, the same sort of shiny shellac crust at the periphery, and the periungual, or the the accentuation around the nails, and then around the nose in this case. Our other case was the mouth. How long did it take the two cases of the bottom slides to appear like that? I mean, was it within 24 hours? Um, this, this infant of ours was well when she left the hospital, and then um, I think over the course of a week developed the rash. In the slides there? Oh, in, the, in this one here? Um, I think over about the same time period. I mean, the, the problem is that so it, it, pro- it develops about over a week, and then people look at it and don't know what it is, and so then it just persists for a long time. And as it persists, it gets more and more eroded. So it gets worse instead of better. So what do we need zinc for? Zinc is important for growth, for wound healing, and for immune function. Um, there are you know, zinc tablets out there now for every time you get a cold. Um, and sources of zinc are oysters, meat and fortified cereals. Obviously, this 
three-month-old is not going to be eating oysters, um, so we're going to have to get it to her in another way, um, dairy and legumes. And so obviously she's not deficient because she's not eating oysters. She's deficient for another reason. And what's interesting about this case is that premature babies need twice as much zinc as term babies do, or as babies who are born on time. And that's because the third trimester is the period of pregnancy when you accumulate all of your minerals, like iron, zinc, and selenium. And so if you miss the third trimester of pregnancy, you miss your opportunity to store up all of those essential um, metals and micronutrients. Interestingly, also, breast milk doesn't have um, adequate zinc often, especially breast milk after six months of age. Um, This baby has a complicated story that I'm not going to get into, but um, probably wasn't getting enough zinc in the breast milk. And then some people can actually inherit an abnormal zinc transporter that doesn't absorb zinc from the intestines. And then another interesting way to get zinc deficiency is if you happen to be in a hospital that has a zinc shortage. So this was published actually just last month. Um, The CDC publishes a morbidity and mortality weekly report on important public health concerns. And there actually is a shortage of zinc in um, nurseries, in neonatal nurseries. And um, so we don't know whether her nursery was having a zinc shortage, but there are there is a shortage of zinc around the country right now, actually. So the fun part about a zinc deficiency dermatitis is that you give the baby zinc, and the baby gets better. So she got better after I think about a week. Um, so this all she has she has left here some a little bit of a lighter area which should recover with time, but they they get better so quickly. Um, It's a really gratifying thing. So take-home point number three is that shellac-like crust can be a sign of nutritional deficiency. Again, I'm not sure that you're going to use that in your daily lives, but (laughs) still a good one. Um, So our fourth mystery is um, a mystery of sort of an epidemic. We saw, starting about two years ago, multiple young children with a strange rash, fever, mouth sores, mild diarrhea, and cough, and there had been outbreaks in the daycares. So this is an example of one of the children that we saw in November 2011. So he has erosions, crust, he has some papules and some vesicles. This is another child who has similarly eczema, so you can see his skin is lichenified. So he's 10, and he has very thickened lichenified skin. But then he also has these little vesicles and papules. This is another child that we saw about a month later with really extensive erosions in all of his areas where he had had eczema before. And then all of these children had mouth sores, um, which are little interesting, small little sores. So this was fun because we don't really know what it was. So we had this. We had children that had erosions, vesicles on their hands, feet, diaper area, and with mouth sores and fevers. And when we put all of that together, we thought, well, it could be some virus causing it. It could be eczema herpeticum because a lot of them had eczema and had sores in the areas where they had had eczema. And I showed you that picture of eczema herpeticum before. Could it be chickenpox or some sort of strange vaccine strain of chickenpox, or could it be an infection? And my boss, Alona Frieden, after seeing a couple of these children in clinic, said, I've never seen anything like this before. 
<clears throat> and you know it's bad when somebody who has been doing this for 25 years <laughs> says, I've never seen anything like this before. Um, and it turns out she was right. We hadn't actually seen anything like it before. So this was our differential diagnosis, and we'll see if you guys want to vote on what you think it could be. So the choices are hand, foot, and mouth disease or a viral rash, chicken pox, impetigo, or eczema herpeticum. How many people think hand, foot, and mouth disease? <clears throat> okay, that's about a third of you. Chicken pox? A few? Impetigo? No. Eczema herpeticum? Okay, good, that was like a quarter. All right, so more split on this one as a group. And so we weren't sure what it was, so we did some tests. Um, we tested for herpes, which was negative. We tested for enterovirus, which is a type of virus that causes hand, foot, and mouth disease. That was negative. We tested for bacteria, which was negative. And as a result, we did not know exactly what it was. But then we read, again, in the literature, the CDC, again, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, published a series of patients that had something called severe hand, foot, and mouth disease caused by Coxsackie virus A6. And what was interesting about this is that all of their enterovirus cultures, which is what we had done in our patients, had been negative. But when they used more refined molecular techniques to look for virus, they found it. So the culture was negative, but they found it using PCR. And when we looked at the literature, there were actually lots of international, not lots, there were five reports of international Coxsackie virus A6. So it had been seen starting in Finland and Singapore in 2008, um, also in uh, Hong Kong, Japan, and in France as well. And these reports talked about a severe rash that was followed by nail shedding and peeling. They had only a few neurologic complications, but they did have some. Um, the hand, foot, and mouth disease that circulates in Asia um, is a different virus than what we get here in our regular hand, foot, and mouth disease, and it causes neurologic symptoms like seizures and some pretty severe complications occasionally. And what they saw, interestingly, around the world is there were low herd immunity. So they saw it in lots of school-aged adult and adult patients. So normally we see hand, foot, and mouth disease in toddlers, and the adults don't get it because they're immune. But this virus was causing disease in adults. So our next step was then to send some of our specimens to the Viral and Rickettsial Disease Laboratory in Richmond, California. So this is it from above. You may not know that it exists, but it's a branch of the Department of Public Health, and it's actually an incredible resource. Here, there's a whole team of scientists that study outbreaks and um, viruses, and um, they were incredibly helpful to us. They took our specimens, and they did PCR, and indeed, it was Coxsackie virus A6. So... All of our cases had this relatively new strain of Coxsackie virus A6. And one of the interesting things is you'll look at these patients, you'll be like, wow, those, they all look kind of different, right? How could this child have the same thing that this child does? Um, but that's one of the interesting things about this virus is that they, it causes really relatively different sorts of rashes in different people. This child did fine. The blister went away. <laughs> so um, this is, so Coxsackie virus A6 is an enterovirus. Um, most infections occur in June and October, or between June and October in the U.S. Um, it's spread by the fecal-oral route or by respiratory route. And there were cases all over the country starting in 2011. And older kids and adults did get it. 
um, but we did have a very low rate of severe systemic illness, so people didn't get very sick. And interestingly, we're actually still seeing cases this year. We thought maybe we would just have a peak and it would be gone and be over, but we were actually seeing a lot of cases. I got two consults last week about it. Um, so we see vesicles and bullae. We see eczema coxsackium, we've started calling it, so um, coxsackie virus that goes in areas affected by eczema. We've seen something called the locus minoris phenomenon, which is another fun dermatology term, where the rash goes to areas of skin injury. So these two children had sunburns on their forearms, and they got blisters from the virus in the area of their sunburn. This child had a laceration on his chin that got sewed up, and then he got the virus infection, and the the blisters went along his scar and his chin. And this child has an irritant dermatitis, you know, from drooling and everything, and she got the virus in, in that area. We did see some petechiae in this um, outbreak, and then we have also seen some nail shedding. So the nails fall off um, six to eight weeks after the infection, and then they grow back normally. So don't worry about it if it happens to you. Um, so mystery number four is that Subtle morphologic clues can be the key to solving a mystery epidemic. In this case, it was the vesicles on the skin and the palms of the, and also the sores in the mouth. And then the Department of Public Health and the CDC are here to help us, and they are an incredible resource when we need them. So this is my, I have one more case, and it should be a quick one. Um, it's another pediatric one. This is a three-month-old baby with a red birthmark who recently developed trouble breathing. So this is the patient. Has anyone seen anything that looks like this before? Make it small and put it on the face of a child. No? I'll tell you what it is in just a minute. So this is a cherry red plaque that's segmental. So when you look at her, you can tell that it really is just kind of here. And what we do, is we, what we call that is the beard distribution. So it's a segmental cherry red plaque in an infant in the beard distribution. And so our differential is infantile hemangioma, port wine stain, or congenital hemangioma. And so how many people think that this looks most like infantile hemangioma? third of you, port wine stain. A couple of you. Yeah, it has the same distribution as the port wine stain, certainly. And then congenital hemangioma. One of you. Okay. All right. So most people voted for infantile hemangioma. And yes, this is actually a type of infantile hemangioma. Um, and what's interesting about it so an infantile hemangioma is a very common birthmark. It's seen in 5% of infants. So some of you may have had one, or you know somebody who did, certainly. They're strawberry birthmarks. So if you think of a strawberry, this is a very classic strawberry birthmark. Um, what they do is they grow really quickly for the first several months, and then they slowly shrink up and go away. So it's actually a very interesting tumor biologically. Um, but what is not explained in this case is why does she have trouble breathing? So why should this thing on her face make it hard for her to breathe? And to solve that question, we asked our ENT colleagues to take a look down her throat and see what was there. And what they saw was a, a hemangioma in her airway, obstructing 50% of her airway. So one of these children has a birthmark that's going to go away and never be noticed again. And one of these children has a birthmark that will eventually go away, but could actually threaten her life in the meantime. And so how do you know which one to worry about? It's really the location. 
and the distribution. So for this, for hemangiomas, it's really all about location. We worry about them in the face. We worry about the central face because they could be disfiguring. We worry about large segmental ones because they can be associated with problems either in the airway um, or in the brain or in the heart. And so when we meet all of these patients in clinic and we see them all the time, we think very carefully about whether this is a hemangioma that needs to be worried about or whether we can just send it on its way. And so this is, this is what we learn as pediatric dermatologists. This is what we do with our years of experience is appropriately worry about benign birthmarks. So this is a segmental hemangioma and an airway hemangioma, and she was treated with propranolol, which is a whole mystery in and of itself. So propranolol is a beta blocker that's used for high blood pressure and for arrhythmias, and somebody discovered five years ago by accident that it makes hemangiomas shrink up. And so it has become, over the last five years, our first-line treatment for infantile hemangiomas. We used to give them all high-dose prednisone, which had a lot of side effects, and this medicine is really a miracle um, and has revolutionized the way we practice as pediatric dermatologists. So she was breathing normally after one month of treatment, and then we kept her on the medicine until about 15 months of age, which is a little bit of a longer time than some patients, but we kept her on it because she had a risk of not being able to breathe if we took her off of it. So um, the final mystery take-home point is that some birthmarks can be a sign of internal abnormalities, and for infantile hemangiomas, it's all about location. What class of drug is propanolol? It's a beta blocker. So it's actually a cardiac drug that's approved, FDA approved for um, treatment in children and in adults for arrhythmias. Uh, people use it for stage fright, um, things like that. Yeah? So you said it was found out by accident. Yeah. Somebody needed it for something else. So what happened was that one of these infants who had a hemangioma, a very large segmental hemangioma, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in um, 2008, um, was on prednisone, which gives you high blood pressure. Um, and so she got put on propranolol to try to treat her high blood pressure, and the pediatric dermatologist who was rounding on her in the hospital noticed that it looked smaller than it had the day before. So this medicine actually works very quickly. Um, and then that pediatric dermatologist was brave enough, well, you could argue brave enough, I would say, since it all turned out well, to try it on other patients. So she put other patients with hemangiomas on it, um, and they have done well. And now there have been hundreds of publications on it. There have been um, several randomized controlled trials, and it um, is very well tolerated and effective. So... Um, so with that, I will um, summarize that I hope I've given you the message that the skin provides the key to many important systemic conditions and infections, and that sharp observational skills are needed to be a dermatologic defect detective, which you can now all be, um, and that dermatology is fun and more than skin deep. And that's it. Thank you very much. And I will take questions now. Yeah, go ahead. Um, do you see a lot of places that are uh, parasitic disease? <laughs> we do not see a lot of parasitic diseases because we practice in San Francisco. Um, we see parasitic diseases, I'd say I see about one parasitic disease a year. I see, I've seen leishmaniasis, which is, um, uh, it's, it's, what did they recategorize leishmaniasis? Parasite. It's a parasite. Um, what? Yes, there are lots of different types of leishmaniasis. Um, oh, I have seen the cute skin only, the cutaneous one. Um, 
my colleague just saw myiasis, which is when the bot flies lie their eggs under the skin and the larvae hatch and live under the skin and wiggle around. Um, I, what else have I seen? Um, we don't see a lot of parasitic disease. Um, if you, if you want to see parasitic disease, you go to the tropics. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So what's the process, like you were talking about, the physician that tried to panel with subsequent patients? What's the process for thinking, and how do, how do they get permission to do that when it's not been yeah. in a clinical trial or FDA? So there are a couple ways of doing that. Um, if you're going to try an off-label medicine or an experimental treatment, um, you should get IRB approval, so invest the investigational research board approval. Um, and basically you write up a research protocol. You say what you're going to do. You say what you're going to look for. And then they approve it. Um, there are also ways through the FDA to get an investigational drug approval. So if there's a drug that is still not completely FDA approved and really hard to get, you can get an investigational drug approval as a way to study a drug for a new indication. Um, and that said, so I, I think, actually, I'm relatively certain that the investigator who, who tried the propranolol on the subsequent infants um, had IRB approval for it. She wrote it up and published it, and most journals won't publish things if you don't have approval for them. Um, the, you know, in pediatric dermatology, we see a lot of very rare conditions, and um, we see things that have no FDA-approved medicine to treat them and we use them um, with very careful thought and with a lot of counseling for the patient and the, and the parents. Um, but if you were going to try something new for the first time, it's best to be part of a, a protocol. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to the uh, Coxsackie virus, yeah. unusual form of CD, you showed the map. It's contagious, right? Because it is contagious. Are, yeah. But if you look at the map, it's spread all over the world, and it's sort of, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's not limited to tropical areas, it's not limited to temperature. How do you uh, find a pattern that way? What's the source of it? So, that's a really interesting question. The question is, basically, if it's contagious, why is it only in those five places around the world? Well, those are the only five places that reported it initially. Um, You know, for an infection to reach a level that it becomes interesting or reportable, you have to get a lot of infections. You know, you have to get, it can't just be, oh, I saw that one case, I don't know what it was, uh, yeah, whatever. But, you know, we saw a lot of cases, which is why we pursued it. We don't have the resources to do that for every new thing that we see. Um, if you look at, so uh, I don't have a slide in this presentation, but um, virologists, so people who study viruses, do what they call phylogenetic trees. So they look at the genetic code for different viruses in different people who are infected. So they look at, so and they've done this for Coxsackie virus A6. They have looked at the Chinese virus, and they've looked at the French virus, and then they've actually looked at our data in California, our California virus. And what we see in California is that our virus probably came partly from China and partly from France, which kind of makes sense. We're we're halfway in between. And um, you know, with the travel that happens these days, people fly around. Um, and so, um, but they can look at basically the genetic code and look at relationships between infected people and figure out where it came from. Yeah. Did you have a question? Oh, yeah. 
All of these things that I talked about today? Um, the question was, are they all rare? Are the things that I talked about today rare? So contact dermatitis is very common. Um, the strongyloides hyperinfection is incredibly rare. So the one with the, the, the larvae in the lungs, exactly good. Um, the uh, Coxsackie virus is actually pretty common. Um, and we're seeing it now. In fact, there are people in the community today that are infected with it. Um, infantile hemangiomas are relatively common, so 5% of the population gets them. Um, what was the last thing? Oh, the deficiency dermatitis. That's pretty rare. The zinc deficiency is pretty rare. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Is eczema something that's in your body and people who have it like it? comes and goes, it's just always with you, like an autoimmune sort of thing? Or yeah. So the, the explanation behind eczema is incredibly complicated, and um, I could have spent the whole hour talking about that. Um, I, in fact, just taught the medical students about eczema, and I was looking for one slide to explain how eczema happens, and I went to this textbook, and I found a table that was five pages long. So... <laughs> It, it, I'm not going to be able to explain to you, but it's a combination of things. So eczema is a combination of dry skin. So the, the people who have severe eczema are born missing a protein that helps moisturize your skin. Um, that makes their skin more, sens more sensitive and more permeable to things from the outside. Um, then their immune system overreacts to those things, and then they become itchy and scratchy and make their eczema worse, um, or their eczema gets worse. Um, so eczema, you know, I'm a pediatric dermatologist. Most children who have eczema will actually outgrow it. Adults who have eczema that has lasted since their childhood are not going to outgrow it and probably will have a little bit of it off and on um, throughout adulthood. Is it something that is passed down from a parent? Yeah. So, um, yes, eczema is, is fairly strongly genetic and carried in families. Yeah. Is, is there a constant drumbeat of new diseases being found, or is, is it just relatively rare and they just pop up So the question is, is there a constant drumbeat of new diseases being found? <laughs> um, there is a constant drumbeat of people recategorizing and renaming old diseases, um, <laughs> which is very frustrating if you're trying to learn them. Um, there are... I think it's pretty rare that something truly new comes along. Um, and even this Coxsackie virus A6, if you look back at all of the enterovirus samples that have been collected over the last 20 years, it was there, but it was 0.04% of the virus. So it was, it, was, it was in the community, but never reached a high enough level that anybody noticed it. Um, yeah, go ahead. Different question. Yeah. Um, the child that had the zinc deficiency, you said it was in the, the he, she, she, she was in the hospital for, for three months, and then yep. a week after she was home, she developed a deficiency. So I'm sure people thought, well, was she getting something when she was in the hospital, some nutrient that she wasn't getting when yes. she went on pure breast milk? Yes, she was. I think she was getting formula in the hospital um, because formula is fully fortified with zinc. Um, and then I think that she, when she went home, it was easier for her family to breastfeed her and to give her breast milk, and so they gave her breast milk when she got home. Yeah. Yes? Um, 
the poison sumac. Yeah. I think it's pronounced poison sumac. Oh, goodness. That's okay. I mean, based upon a uh, story by uh, Oscar Wilde, he was asked by a woman, did you know that sugar and shumac are the only two words in ancient language where S-U was pronounced shu? And he answered, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's very good. I did not know that. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.